earth and the people who came to visit him when he was a young child. Today, as we read Matthew 2, 13 to 23, I want to encourage you to consider the main idea that Matthew is attempting to persuade us about. And he's going to assert that the events around Jesus' life aren't myth. They're not legend. But these are actual historical account, accounts of what happened to Jesus. And he's going to make a particular point. And just in case you get tired later on, here's the point that Matthew makes. By God's sovereignty in Jesus, there is a new exodus and an end to mournful exile for sin. Now, if that means absolutely nothing to you, then you're in the right place. And hopefully in a few minutes, it will make a lot of sense. As we hear the text read in a moment, I want to encourage you to listen for that point. By God's sovereignty in Jesus, there is a new exodus and an end to mournful exile for sin. My uh, friend Brent is going to read for us from this text in uh, Matthew. What would you do with the mic? Oh, this is amazing. You're also a magician. Hello. Okay. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I shall call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region in all the region where two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because, she, because they are no more. But when Herodah died, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the children's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Gal Galilee. And when he went to live in the city called Nazareth, so that when so that was, was spoken by the prophet fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Amen. Thank you, brother. You no doubt have heard the saying, history repeats itself. Certainly there's some truth to that. 
Also, there's times in which that's taken a bit further, perhaps, than the history would justify itself. There's certainly a lot of conspiracy theories out there. Take, for example, perhaps the most famous in American history, that is the connections made between Abraham Lincoln and JFK. For example, Lincoln was born as a second child in his family. And guess what? Kennedy was too. Lincoln was first elected to the House in 1846. Kennedy was first elected to the House in 1946. You're a quick learn. Lincoln failed to win the vice president nomination in 1856. Kennedy failed to win the vice president nomination in 1956. Once serving as president, Lincoln had a vice president named Johnson. Once serving as president, Kennedy had a vice president named Johnson. You can't make this stuff up. Lincoln had a secretary named Kennedy. Kennedy had a secretary named Lincoln. Lincoln died from a gunshot wound to the head. Kennedy died from a gunshot wound to the head. No laughing. Lincoln was shot at Ford's Theater. Kennedy was shot in a Ford car. The, this one's my favorite. The assassin's name for Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth, contains 15 letters. The assassin's name, Lee Harvey Oswald, for Kennedy, had 15 letters. Now, you'll have to decide for yourself whether each one of those similarities are consequential. But we could at least say there's some eerie similarities. Yes? What we have in Matthew 2 is something very different. We have a lot of similarities to some particular events that came before, but there's no conspiracy theory, there's no young professor reading into history what's not actually there to make a name for himself or herself, and there's no internet trivia game manufacturing history. Matthew draws some incredibly deliberate connections between the nation of Israel from the Old Testament and the early years of Jesus' life. They are uncanny. These connections are not merely incidental or coincidental, like the ones we just talked about between Lincoln and Kennedy. These connections we should more rightly call fulfillments. Fulfillments. You see, Jesus re-experienced Israel's history in order to do what Israel failed to do. And that might not sound 
this morning like good news. But friend, that makes all the difference in the world. Jesus encountered similar circumstances, but he didn't fall prey to similar tragic mistakes. Jesus brought the original events of the Old Testament to the people of God. And he brought them to their intended outcome in the New Testament. Jesus would trace Israel's steps and meet every temptation, but with faith and trust. For example, in verses 13 through 15 that Brent just read for us, we see that Jesus became like a refugee and went down into Egypt and was later delivered out of Egypt, just like Israel. Similarly, in verses 16 to 18, there's a mourning over death and a baby boy is preserved to later deliver God's people, just like had happened to Moses. So, God sovereignly ensured that Jesus would do what Israel didn't and therefore inaugurate, if you will, a new exodus and bring about an end to the mournful exile from sin. But not in a way that's merely repeating the same thing again, but rather in an intensification, in a fulfillment Jesus inaugurated, you see, not just a second exodus, but a far better one. And Jesus was not merely a second Moses, but a far, far better one. So what I'd love to do together this morning in the few minutes that we have together is as we try to work our way up flat iron to consider two things, two ideas. First, that Jesus leads his people on a better exodus. And second, that Jesus leads his people from mourning to joy. Would you consider those with me today and labor that we might reach the summit together? First, Jesus leads his people on a better exodus. If you look down in your Bible at Matthew 2, 15, we won't read it again, but just let your eyes glance over it, you'll notice that there are quotation marks around verse 15. That's because this is a reference, a quotation, from an Old Testament book called Hosea. Hosea 11, verse 1. Now, if you were to take the time to turn back to Hosea, you would find that Hosea 11, verse 1, is actually a recounting of something that occurred much, much earlier than that way back in the second book of your Bible, the book of Exodus. The people of God had fled from Egypt, had fled to Egypt due to a famine, and God had provided for them there in many, many ways. If you're unfamiliar with the story, maybe take a mere 30 to 45 minutes later today, take one of these blue Bibles and read that second book of Exodus. It is as good as any story anywhere. Read through it and you'll understand something of what God did for His people. Eventually, a new leader came to power in Egypt and he was intimidated by how many Jews were living in the land. He's afraid there might be something of a coup, an uprising. And so, 
He, as often happens in history when a leader feels threatened, he came at them with force, with power, with cruelty. And seemingly overnight, these Jews who had known safety and security as foreigners in Egypt became slaves. And this resulted not in a term or two, but in 400 years of terrible slavery. The Israelites pleaded with God throughout this time, God, don't you remember us? God, won't you rescue us? God, won't my kids know something better of a life than I've ever had? God, you promised to take us to a land where we'd be free. Won't you do it? Do you hear us? Do you even care? God heard and God came through. And God, in miraculous ways, rescued the people out of Egypt in order to show the Egyptians that their gods weren't really gods, that He is the one true God. Now, if we fast forward several hundred years, the Jews have been living in the land. They have experienced great, tremendous blessings from God that they did not earn. And yet they have again and again and again stumbled. Now Hosea 11 verse 1 is God looking back, explaining what He had done for them. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Does that sound familiar? Brent just read it for us. This is the verse Matthew quotes and applies to Jesus coming up out of Egypt. Now, we're we're at one of those spots on our journeys where we've got to go to all fours. This is a particularly steep moment. Think with me for a minute about this. This is not at all like the quote we had last week from the Old Testament. A quote last week is where Micah looked ahead and said, God's going to send a deliverer. He's going to send a baby. And that baby will be born in Bethlehem. So it was a specific, predictive prophecy that this exact thing would happen in the future. But Hosea has absolutely nothing like that. Hosea is not predictive prophecy. It's a reminder of what God had already done for Israel. So in other words, if you go to Hosea and read from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 11, verse 1, you're not going to see anything saying, this child will be born in this place. Guarantee it, it's coming up in the future. That's not the way this book is wired. And yet, Matthew says, look closely in your Bibles at verse 15, it says, this was to fulfill. Herod was killing baby boys in Israel, and Joseph took his family to Jesus to, to Egypt so Jesus wouldn't be murdered. And somehow, this happened in order to fulfill Hosea 11? 
The reason why this was a fulfillment will become clearer if we read the rest of the chapter. Hosea 11 is one of the most beautiful sections of the Old Testament describing God's disposition toward His people. It says in verse 2, the the more they, the, the they as Israel, God's people, the more they were called, the more they went away. The more... They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim how to walk. I took them up by their arms and they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on the jaws. I love this line. I bent down to them and fed This is the condescension of an almighty, all-powerful God to tend to people. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they've refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. Though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. This is the judgment of God. Yet, how can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admin? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warmer and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Friends, hang with me just a bit longer. God led the Jews on the Egyptian exodus, brought them into the land, stooped down to feed them, to provide for them. He blessed them immensely. And again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, they turned their backs on Him. They served false gods who could not help. But God didn't give up on them. Yes, discipline came, but He showered more and more and more grace on them, even in judgment. What wells up within God and remains is compassion, is mercy, is grace, is love. In Jesus, there's a new exodus. There's a better exodus. You see, because Jesus inaugurated this exodus not merely 
to bring people out of physical slavery in Egypt, but to bring us out of spiritual slavery that would last forever. Jesus went through what Israel went through. He went down into Egypt, but there He did not sin. And He was brought up out of Egypt, and in so doing, He did not sin. And He was brought into the land of Israel, and there He did not sin. And Christian, we're at that first summit now. Lift up your head. Look out and see the view. In the gospel, Jesus' obedience is credited as yours. God's faithfulness is yours. God's love for Jesus is yours. God's status, His disposition, the recognition of Jesus as His Son is yours, O Son and daughter of God. Because Jesus did what Israel failed to do, you now have an eternal seat at the table of God's mercy and grace. And the courses don't ever stop coming. He's no longer stooping down. You're sitting at the table with Him. Do you see what this means? Christian, you're not enslaved to anger. Yes, you blew up recently. In selfishness, you again lashed out in harsh words and harmed another person made in God's image. You lost control. Again. But anger is not your master. Jesus is. And out of Egypt, out of spiritual slavery, God has called you. Christian, you are not enslaved to greed. Your stuff does not own you. Yes, you are in a massive amount of debt. Yes, you don't pick up the phone if you don't know the number because it's a creditor. Yes, you chronically buy things to try to make yourself feel better and then they just sit useless. Yes, you tend to overspend and worry constantly. But money is not your master. Jesus is. And out of Egypt, out of spiritual slavery, God has called you. Christian, you are not enslaved to lust. Yes, you have given your mind over to objectifying people. Yes, you've made grave spiritual mistakes. Yes, it may feel some days as though your passions are binding. But lust is not your master. Jesus is. 
what you have done is not the most important thing about you. What Jesus has done is. Jesus came up out of Egypt. And in so doing, you have too. Isn't this view from the top nice? Because Jesus came, because he obeyed, because he was faithful to the Father, because he was called up out of Egypt, because he went to the cross, because he rose again, the penalty and the power of sin has been broken. You no longer have a cruel, angry Pharaoh dominating you. You have a good, gracious God leading you. That brings us to that second point, Matthew 2, 16 through 23, where Matthew makes even more connections. Jesus leads his people from mourning to joy. When Herod realized that the wise men we talked about last week who had traveled from the east and they'd come looking for baby Jesus following that star. They came into the city of Jerusalem because where do you go to look for somebody powerful and important? Well, you go to the capital, of course. You go to the big city. But Jesus wasn't there. So they asked around, where is the new king of the Jews? Herod got wind, felt threatened. And just like the Pharaoh before him, he made the exact same decision. He said, let all the Jewish boys two years and younger be slaughtered. Can you imagine? Ladies, you're holding your six-month-old. And a soldier beats on your door, takes your son, beats on your son. That's why Jesus took the trip to Egypt in the first place. But notice that Matthew's careful to connect the grief of those mothers in his day to the grief of the mothers in Jeremiah's day. Now, Jeremiah is another Old Testament book. He was another Old Testament prophet, which means we're backing up in time. And if you look at Matthew 2, verse 18, you'll notice again, there's quotation marks. That's because this is a quote from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Again, just like our previous passage in Hosea, there is no predictive prophecy specifically saying Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. The text doesn't work like that. In Jeremiah, the people of Israel had chronically turned away from God. Does that sound familiar? Despite his care, despite his grace, despite his love, they take advantage of him. 
They had rejected God and his good word. Consequently, God had disciplined them. Babylonia and Assyria conquered Israel. And many, many, many people were taken out of Israel to live as conquered people in foreign lands. These mothers were weeping not because their children were killed, but because the young men were being carted off to Babylon and to Syria. They were taken in order to be indoctrinated in pagan ways. This is what every parent fears when their child goes off to college. Will my child be baptized in ways that will forever keep them from God? And so these mothers are weeping because they're watching their sons being taken. Taken as captives to live in a foreign land. Never knowing if they would return and if they did return, if they would still be like they were before they left. And so these mothers are weeping. But they're not only weeping because of their sons, they're weeping because the price of their sin was that great. These were commensurate, appropriate consequences for rebellion against God. You see, God's laws, friends, are for our good. And when we turn from Him and turn from His laws, we're undoubtedly giving ourselves over to things that are harmful. They were undone due to their own tragic decisions. Have you experienced that? Is there a a trail of broken relationships leaving you with no real friends due to chronic self-centeredness that has left you profoundly lonely? Are you feeling the effects of the catastrophe of pornography or fornication or adultery? Do you know something of the consequence of the shattering of families due to anger and unforgiveness? Do you feel the suffocating load of debt? That's almost like being drowned alive every time another bill shows up. Do you have failed classes this semester because you chose to play instead of study? Do you have a profound sense of distance from God when you pray because you're not living with your wife in an understanding way? Therefore, your prayers are quite literally hitting the ceiling and bouncing back down. Friends, sin is real. And the consequences are awful. This is no joke. But in Jesus Christ, that mourning for sin is exchanged for a lasting joy. Because Jesus took the consequences for our sin. So the grief we rightly feel for our rebellion need not cause us to be devastated by it. Because Jesus has consumed in himself all the wrath of God we rightly deserve. And so while we may experience in some limited way, some tiny little natural 
consequence for sin, we will know nothing of the eternal damnation we so rightly deserve. Because Jesus absorbed that in Himself as He hung on that cross. And so friend, regardless of what you feel today, if you are in Christ, the truth is you are forgiven. You are free. God's disposition toward you is in no way negative. He is only and forever welling up with compassion. You are treated as though you are, in fact, His Son because you are in Him and He is in you. In Jesus' day, there was weeping, but Jesus took that morning to the cross and died so that we might know nothing but eternal joy in Christ. Christian, this is the gospel. While we may know mourning and suffering and hardship and trials of various kinds in this life, we need not mourn as people who are afraid to come to God. We need not mourn as though God is in any way angry with us. We need not mourn as though God has a few more droplets of difficulty for us because of something we've done. We need only and forever be assured of His loving kindness. Christian, irrespective of what you've done, There is no grief. There is only grace. Friend, if you're here today and you don't know this kind of love and grace and total forgiveness, if you don't know God, the offer of salvation is extended to you this morning. Do you see in these simple words from the Bible the loving, open, forgiving arms of God? Do you recognize your failure to meet His commands and yet feel something this morning of the hope of a disposition of mercy from God for you? If so, my dear friend, then the light of the gospel has shone in you today. And if you would but turn from a life of sin to a life with Christ, then you will no longer know an angry taskmaster. And you will no longer feel the grief that your mistakes own you. You will feel and have nothing but the love of God. Church, by God's sovereignty in Jesus, there is a new exodus and there is an end to mournful exile for sin. You will never be led away from the presence and the place and the residence of God. This is His promise to you in Christ. This is, as cheesy as it sounds, the reason 
beziehen. Let's pray. God, thank you that my brothers and sisters and friends this morning have labored with me to climb flat iron, have done the hard work of trying to understand multiple passages and put together literally the whole biblical story. We pray now that what has been said that is of you would fall heavy on us. And that those of us who need to be lifted up and encouraged and resting assured in Christ that we're forgiven, God, that we would feel all of your love and grace this morning. God, we, feel, we, we pray that those who need to be convicted of sin, that they might turn to you and be forgiven, would do so now. Father, we pray that we as a people who know a better exodus than Israel had, who know we will never be exiled, that we as a people would not walk away like they did, that we who are bound up in your kindness forever would live as a people holy, set apart, distinct. That in our relationships with each other, we would display something of the love and forgiveness we have received from you. That in our generosity toward the world, we would show something of your generosity toward us. That in the way we forgive one another, we would show your forgiveness for us. We pray in the next few days, Lord, as we celebrate Christmas, that this passage... would bring about change. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.